the National Archives podcast series. The annual digital lecture, Semantic Capital, what is it and how to protect it? It was presented by Luciano Floridi and recorded on the 8th of June 2018 at the National Archives Q. I'm Dr Anna Sexton and I'm Head of Research here at the National Archives and it is my pleasure to welcome you to our inaugural digital lecture. As this is the first in what we anticipate to be a long-running series, it's worth taking a moment to reflect on why convening an annual event which focuses on exploring digital and technological innovations around record keeping and the wider societal ramifications of such innovation is so important to us here. We know that digital is our biggest strategic challenge and that the National Archives is not alone in this. Archives around the world are grappling with that digital challenge too. Our ability to preserve and make available digital records will decide what evidence people in the future will have of today. Archivists and record keepers therefore need to develop extraordinary new capabilities to ensure digital records can be kept and accessed for future generations. Our digital strategy articulates the conceptual and technological shifts required of us to meet the challenges we face. And these also run as a thread through our emerging research priorities, which will be published on our website next month. As we rethink the record in the light of digital, we at the National Archives are actively asking, how can we utilise emergent technologies to improve our record-keeping practice? How are the roles and responsibilities of record-keeping institutions evolving alongside emergent technologies? And importantly, what are the ethical implications of these shifts? Convening an annual event that brings together people who share these challenges and questions and can offer insight at the intersection between archives, society, technology and ethics is what this annual lecture series is designed to achieve. The annual digital lecture is led by our research and academic engagement team and in particular I would like to highlight the work of my colleague Dr Irene Gaudarali who has been the main driving force behind this evening. But of course digital research itself cuts across the National Archives and therefore this evening is a collaborative cross-directorate initiative. So I would also like to thank my colleagues from across the National Archives, particularly those from our Digital Directorate and from our Collections, Expertise and Engagement Department, who've worked on producing the posters which you will be engaging with later, and have been so enthusiastic about being here this evening and sharing their digital initiatives with you. So following the lecture, we invite you to join us for a glass of wine and we encourage you to look at our poster exhibition, which is happening just next door, where you can meet the practitioners and researchers from across the National Archives who are actively engaged with our digital challenges and learn more about our current digital research activities. And after this evening, we will be sending you an email to gather feedback from you to inform our future planning. So now on to our main event, the lecture itself, which we anticipate will last for about 45 minutes and that will be followed by a Q&A which will be chaired by our digital director, John Sheridan. 
It is my pleasure to introduce our speaker, who I would also like to thank for being with us, and who I know will provide us with plenty of insight and reflections that we can use as entry points into discussions with each other around our digital challenges as part of this evening's event. Luciano Floridi is Professor of Philosophy and Ethics of Information at the University of Oxford, where he directs the Digital Ethics Lab at the Oxford Internet Institute. He is also Faculty Fellow of the Alan Turing Institute and Chair of its Data Ethics Research Group and Chairman of the Ethics Advisory Board of the European Medical Information Framework. He sits on the EU's Ethics Advisory Group on Ethical Dimensions of Data Protection, on the Royal Society and British Academy Working Group on Data Governance, and on Google's Advisory Board on the Right to be Forgotten. His areas of expertise include the philosophy of information, digital ethics, and the philosophy of technology, in which he has published extensively. He is therefore one of the leading voices shaping the debate around the intersection between ethics, society, and technology. It is therefore my great pleasure to welcome him to the stage to speak to us this evening on semantic capital, what it is, and how to protect it. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Many thanks. Um, First of all, thank you, sincerely, for managing to be here, uh, and the invitation. Um, the thank you to uh, manage to be here is obvious. Some of us uh, didn't quite get here, and uh, we will have to be a little bit patient if anyone sort of percolates through while we are engaging. But the thank you for the invitation has a special twist, uh, which is a, a not exactly a polite way of thanking people who have been so nice uh, the colleagues from the, the archive uh, to get me here. I will present half-baked ideas. And now if you have guests, that's the last thing you want to do. You, know? you invite them to dinner and then you say, oh, I tried a new recipe. You say, with me, tonight, really? <laughs> Why? <laughs> I was expecting something good that you know how to cook. I said, no, 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 but I treat you specially. You're really special. And therefore, I've never done this before. So, Okay, uh, I can see the special nature of this special dinner, but if anything here uh, sounds uh, really sort of work in progress, we never speak about half-baked in academia, work in progress, well, I would sort of emphasize the progress. Uh, the truth is that uh, I've been trying to uh, understand a very simple idea, semantic capital, which I will spend some time describing, for some time. And, uh, and I thought when uh, the very kind invitation arrived, I thought, this is a unique opportunity. I can cook something I never cooked before. Uh, and therefore, this talk you will not find it on YouTube. Uh, uh, and um, it's not something that I've given before. Uh, so forgive me if um, some of the ideas uh, I'm going to present really are tentative. Which also means that, and I then stop and I show you something interesting, uh, I hope that I'm particularly keen, even more than in other contexts, to hear what uh, is the reception of this idea. A bit of Q&A as we go uh, towards the end of the evening. For those of us who are a little bit less young, um, you know that you reach a point when uh, nobody reads 
your staff ever. You're not a student, you're not a candidate, and to force colleagues to read something when everybody's busy, everybody's, it's hard. So the Q&A is a precious moment. It's when you get some feedback, when you finally know, did I say something okay, or is that something totally out of line? So I will try really my best to be quick on the presentation to leave time for an interchange that uh, is going to be entirely selfish. I might actually not learn, and uh, that's priceless. Now, because the presentation uh, is um, uh, hopefully uh, rather quick, uh, there will be a map, and this map will come up again. So if we get lost, just wait for the next time you see this uh, picture. I will ask... Uh, start from a definition, understanding what exactly I mean by semantic capital, so we know what we're talking about. Uh, a few examples, so we are covering the ground. And then, uh, um, not just a philosophy of semiotics, theory, theory symbols, or a semantics, a theory of meaning, um, of this particular object, which I haven't described yet, namely semantic capital, but rather its internal logic. What are the formal features that this semantic capital might uh, have. And its value, why do we value, uh, I guess anyone here must already have half an idea what semantic capital may, may not be, but why do we value and what the risks are. Towards the s now, as we move from left to right, you will see that there's an emphasis between the lines and on the lines about the ethics. Protecting, fostering, making sure that this special thing that we as entities in this universe are the only one able to generate. Simplifying at the moment, meaning is actually at the center of our concerns. And uh, at a time when uh, meaningfulness seems to be slightly disregarded by uh, almost anyone is in power, whether here in Rome or in Washington, I trust that you will also understand that this has a political implication. Now, the definition first. So, um, what I meant, and I'm, I'm sorry if I have to turn, uh, this lesson number one, whenever you give a lecture, don't turn, but there's no other way. Um, so there's a wealth of intangible products, intangible not because we do not have a record, a physical support, but because uh, we might actually replace the figure's support, and yet the value of that intangible remains, um, of such as ideas, insights, discoveries, inventions, traditions, culture, languages, art, religions, sciences, narrative, customs, and norms, add songs, music, etc. More on this because the object is quite fuzzy at the moment, bear with me, that we as humans produce. No one else does that we know of. We refine it, we consume it, we transmit it, we know it, and we do this through time. I know we know that's the right place where not to spend time discussing this. Um, but what I want to emphasize is uh, I hope that the shift is sufficiently significant to make a difference. I do not talk about this in terms of how meaningful this is, but what is the use of it. And to me, uh, it means that this semantic capital, to be defined in a slide or two, is what gives meaning to and makes sense of something to be defined as well. Remember, I do come from uh, uh, half of my life I was a mathematical logician, so uh, definitions will come of our own existences, of the realities that surround us, and helps us to develop 
as individual in social life. So they also contribute to define who we are. Wipe completely, destroy, annihilate, burn the books of that culture, and you are really affecting also the nature of those individuals, the nature of society. All this is well known, we all know it's just warming up to get to the right page. So I just thought, well, surely this is such an obvious idea, they must have plenty of no, literature that I can read on before doing something. And so uh, this is quite recent, uh, I asked for an extension, extension, then when last, in the last 24 hours, uh, I was told, we really need your slides. Okay, so that was yesterday. And when I searched Google for semantic capital, there were 596 results, which everybody knows here, it's nothing. Most of them are about a particular company called semantic uh, capital for economic reasons. And the few that are not related to this company are actually about this talk. So uh, you know that uh, there is no such thing as semantic capital, and I so had to uh, cope with that. I knew that in advance, but that's the, uh, the most recent results. It might be 597 <coughs> if anyone had tweeted uh, a moment ago. So I couldn't just rely on, as we know what you do in, you know, in a scholarly approach at the university, in academia, say, oh, who has said something before? Uh, we had to enter into <coughs> uncharted territory. And so here is a definition, and it's a working definition, as, as all definitions uh, will have to do for the moment, but of course to be refined also thanks to the Q&A. Any content, more on that, that can enhance someone's power, someone to be defined, <coughs> to give meaning to and make sense of, well, let's introduce a new or newish word, semanticize something. And each of those keywords needs to be understood properly, which is the task of the next slides. So content. Well, I'm happy to go with well-formed and meaningful data. The data in question are any particular uh, sign, uh, physical, uh, that makes somewhat of a difference against the background. So it could be a dot on a white page, it could be a light in the darkness, it could be the whole al alphabet, it could be a s music script, it could be a scratch on a vinyl, it could be, you get it, a physical difference in the world. So, uh, to put it more philosophically, uh, a, a lack of uniformity. Think of it for a moment, if you have a uniform space, uh, there is no data there. And in fact, we lose data immediately when you have a single sound that never changes in the room. After a while, you don't hear it anymore. You don't hear it because it makes no difference. And uh, when we were in the army, we were told never look uh, at a particular point of light in the darkness because after a while, the eye doesn't see it anymore. Look just next to it and the eye will keep seeing it. So that is the difference that I'm talking about. Data as that physicality down there. The meaningfulness is whatever interpretation we uh, give to that particular dot of light in the darkness or to that particular scratch uh, on a piece of paper. Well formed is more important because it's the syntax, it's not the semantics. It has to have somewhat of a rule-based form. So once you have the well formed, the meaningfulness, the data, well, that's the kind of content that I'm talking about in that definition. And I'm happy to go into more details if we 
uh, want to scratch this. But what about someone? Well, here is an assumption. The assumption is that in order to have semantic capital, you have to be human or human-like or based on a human conglomerate of humans. So, for example, uh, a physical or legal person, and therefore, say, the archives, could semanticize the world. A political party can give meaning to and make sense of the world. A whole government can, but because there's human stuff out there. If you think that this is a, a too obvious a distinction, like, could anyone think otherwise? Well, you should meet some of my colleagues from the robotics department. Uh, there is current discussion, and by the way, um, I'm pro-European, but there is a current discussion in uh, Brussels, you can always make fun of Brussels one way or another, uh, where uh, some uh, members of the parliament are considering whether we should cons uh, discuss robots of some kind, maybe very advanced, as digital or um, electronic persons. Why? Because they are pretty much like a company. If a company can be a person of a legal kind, why not a robot of a, an electronic kind? Well, the difference is that a company contains hum humans, and the humans make the difference in terms of, for example, teachability, motivation, intentions, are life of the mind. And that's not what happens in a pure artifact. So my fridge cannot semanticize the world. The only way the fridge can semanticize the world is because I use it to semanticize the world. And therefore, that big American two-doors fridge makes a different sense <coughs> of the world than the little thing not normally you have in your dorm in college that hardly not contains a bottle of uh, sparkling water. Yes, different meaning, but because we have used it to do that. So I would like to say that the someone's there is a physical legal person or a group of physical legal persons Somewhat, somewhere, at some point, there is a mental life involved. Semanticize, a bit more complicated. That's the process of enriching an experience with an interpretation. And that's why we need some examples. What exactly that means, uh, it's easier uh, to refer to the usual joke about pornography. Uh, you know, I know, but just in case you missed the joke, uh, the, the judge of the uh, Supreme Court who said, Look, don't, don't push it too hard. I don't have a definition for pornography, but I recognize it when I see it. Indeed. So I, it's very hard to have a definition of interpretation, a definition of enriching an experience. But I think we understand each other when I say, look, through uh, this wealth of content, you can use it to make sense of the world. You can use it to give meaning to the world to yourself, to ourselves, to our society, to anything else out there. And because this, admittedly, is still a little bit too abstract, I thought I could give you uh, an example so that we so ground on a more uh, concrete uh, uh, floor. The example uh, I thought should be random and should be challenging for me. Because if I'm, what I'm saying is a bit of an experiment I run against myself. If I'm uh, right, then this should apply to anything I select out of the, say, hat. And therefore, I decided, okay, where am I? I was in Santa Barbara, in California. And I said, okay, how do I apply this to the city of Santa Barbara, California? How can I possibly use some content to make sense of 
and say give meaning to a variety of things by relying on Santa Barbara. And trust me, that is as random as it gets. Well, guess what? First of all, there is the San Saint Barbara, the, the lady. Uh, she uh, is a bit of a mystery, but we think, at least according to documents, that she lived in the third century uh, after Christ, inevitably, to be the saint. And um, uh, she uh, was uh, killed, as happens to saints. Uh, uh, she's also a martyr. Um, the point is that uh, she's al always represented with a castle because, uh, or a tower, uh, because uh, when she was left alone uh, by her father in the tower, uh, the, father, the father also required that uh, uh, she would uh, not become Christian, of course, and would build uh, a bath uh, next to the tower so that uh, she would not meet anyone. Uh, when the father comes back, she has built the uh, extra sort of, uh, sort of extension of the tower with three uh, windows as a symbol of the Trinity. The father doesn't like it, the story goes really uh, awfully wrong, uh, and uh, she's tortured, um, she becomes a martyr. The point is that uh, the very interesting part of the story is that what happens to the father. Because the father was involved in the torturing, and uh, up there they didn't quite like it, um, he's uh, killed by lightning. And so uh, it, all of a sudden, the saint gets associated to lightning. And because you need uh, holy helpers, no matter what happens out there, she becomes one of the 14 holy helpers, uh, protector of anyone, whenever there is, uh, say, a tempest, and I'm using tempest for a reason, you'll see, um, a storm, something that is dangerous with extra bang and boom. So, that's where Santa Barbara comes from. Uh, the artillery, the ships have a particular place where they have all that dangerous powder that could explode. And if you need the statue of anyone there is the statue of Santa Barbara, even if not the, the saint is not quite clear whether she does or does not exist. Well, what's the connection between the, uh, this particular artillery in Santa Barbara, where the saint is there to protect us, with uh, the city? Well, before I say something wrong, in 1602, Sebastian Vizcaino was uh, there uh, uh, for uh, exploration. Uh, he survived a storm really close to the coast. He decided to thank <coughs> the saint of the day, which happened to be Santa Barbara. Too precious to miss. And therefore he founded the city of Santa Barbara. So this name here has been become meaningful, make sense of the world, etc., because of a saint of the third century, because someone in 1602 was traveling over there, uh, survived a storm. But how do we get to the other things? Well, uh, the distance between Santa Barbara and uh, uh, the barbituric acid is not so big. It was discovered, or actually synthesized, in 1863 by Dr. Bayer, uh, the Bayer, and um, we don't know why it's called barbituric acid in any possible way, but there are three hypotheses. One, because it was the 4th of December, the day when Santa Barbara is uh, celebrated. Two, because he was in love with Barbara, uh, a, a local lady in a sense. Uh, and three, because he used to hang out with people from the army, the artillery, that kind of army. 
And so all of a sudden, the reason why you have barbituric acid is because someone either was in love with Barbara, did that on the 4th of December, or was hanging out with that kind of soldiers. Unless you know that, and I hope from now on you will look at barbituric acid with different eyes, that is the depth that you start getting. So, oh, that's interesting. But what's the connection with Mildred in Fahrenheit? 451, 451, as you know, I know you know, this is not a place where I need to explain what 451 is, um, but just in case, you know, the world has gone very wrongly, um, they burn books, uh, you shouldn't uh, allow to have books, but there's a community that memorized the books uh, by heart, and every individual is a book, it's a classic, and recites lines of their book. It's a wonderful thing, and uh, which I discovered only later. I used to go to a, uh, a bookshop when I was a kid uh, called Fahrenheit 451. I never quite understood why it was called that way until I read the books. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. But what happens to Gui Montag's wife? Uh, she tries to commit suicide. How? By eating barbituric acid. That's amazing. So the protection of books in Fahrenheit 451, the protection of culture, the semantic capital that is so cherished in that dystopian book has a connection with the wife or the guy who actually will join the resistance who tries to kill herself through barbituric acid which was discovered by someone who called that etc. You can see that I had just chosen Santa Barbara because I was there a few weeks ago. You can do this a million times. That's what I mean. That's the semantic capital that we need to be aware of, cherish, protect, enrich. That is us. Capital U, capital S. So, surely someone has been there before. Oh yes, absolutely. So for those of us who are acquainted with uh, bits of literature here and there, the uh, Renaissance people in the room, uh, there is semiotics, which of course looks at the symbols and how the symbols or the signs convey and support uh, all the semantic capital. Saussure, onwards, uh, or person lock, depending on your orientation. It's of course philosophy. Cassir has written some of the, well, a great German philosopher from the last century, one of the most beautiful pages on the philosophy of symbolic forms. And what is the philosophy of symbolic forms, if not one way of talking about the forms of semantic capital? Or, more recently, recur, hermeneutics, the interpretation of. And in fact, if you look at those 500 or so references in Google, a few of them refer to the richness of words in their vocabulary as recur has mentioned. So the few people actually have ever said or ever mentioned semantic capital in one breath have been reading uh, recur. They didn't know they were speaking prose, if you pass me the joke. Moliere, but uh, they were talking about something very similar. But what's the logic of this? So, the hermeneutics, the philosophy, the, the semiotics, well, all this uh, concentrates normally on uh, the richness, the genesis, the value of semantic capital. But I'm interested in the sheer capital aspect of semantic. In other words, what work does it do for me? Almost like the money we have in the bank. These are, and we'll get in there, some of the, my cherish, but each of us has his own special selection, explorers of semantic capital. What unifies these authors, uh, Perec, Life as a User's Manual, Calvinus, uh, Mr. Palomar, 
uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Persing, or the Library of Babel uh, with uh, Borges, they are all talking about the richness of semantic capital. They try to identify the patterns, the mysteries, how anything is connected to anything. That Santa Barbara moment that I just quickly sketched, that could have come from a user manual. If you haven't read the book, don't miss it. It's something that makes you lose your orientation. Because someone might pick up uh, a box of biscuits. The box of biscuits might be coming from somewhere with a picture on it. The picture might refer to something historical. And then we're going into understanding all the history of the picture on the tin box. And you keep going and you understand at some point that there is no bottom. In other words, that this semantic capital, the richness of it, also because we can slice it so thinly, it has always a point between any two points. Remember when we studied that uh, even in a no, finite segment, there's an infinite number of points? Well, that is the infinite amount of meaning you can find, even in the shortest possible story. And so goes, um, but that's not what I want to talk about. So maybe for another day, maybe in another time. Part of this uh, uh, would connect uh, with um, another point where I want to touch briefly, namely how the description in literature of the magician, whether it's Faust or Prospero uh, in The Tempest, remember uh, The Tempest that I mentioned before, is also a story of handling or actually being frustrated by the semantic capital that surrounds you. If you remember the beginning of Faust, this is surrounded by this enormous vault uh, and uh, room, medieval, this history and plenty of books and he's not very happy about them. And he opens a book, etc. Well, The Tempest ends by throwing away the books, which I actually serve Prosperous pretty well. Either way, is semantic capital either at work or not working well enough? What's the difference here? Is that uh, these magicians, they are exploiters, not explorers of semantic capital. They want to use it to achieve something. They want to get some fruit out of it. So I'm a bit more along those lines. Now, because I said we're uh, interested in looking at the logic of the semantic capital, assuming that we have some idea of what the semantic capital looks like in terms of definition and examples, uh, but let me just give you uh, one particular bit, which I think will be part of the story of semantic capital. That's much more at the individual and communitarian level. This comes from Aristotle. Uh, the Greek word is anagnorisis, which means realization. Realization is a special way in which we make sure that the meaningfulness of the narrative we have in our mind is consistent. Something happens in your life. Maybe you were married and then you divorce and then maybe you marry again. You better have a lot of anagnorisis because the anagnorisis of the first story I'm in love, that's the person of my life, so has to be completely wiped and start from scratch. So I remember the young Luciano when I was a teenager realizing I'm gonna get out of this crash with this lady who's no young girl, who's not gonna no, be in love with me until I become a different person. Because my anagnorisis, not that I call it that way, I didn't know, um, but my ability to reinterpret who I am will have to be a change of skin. As long as I am who I am, I will always be in this particular predicament. I hope one day I will be someone else and there will be history. And, well, guess what? You grow up, 
things become a little bit more distant. So is the protagonist, that's in Aristotle, sudden discovery or recognition of his own another character's true identity or nature through an agnosis previously unforeseen character information is revealed is not falsification for anyone who has read Popper here. Not at all. It's not something like, oh, I thought you were a friend. Instead, you are a bastard. Goodbye. No, that's not anachronism of any kind. No, it's more like uh, Star Wars. They are in love. Very much so. Oh, what a drama. Because there's someone else. I'm not giving it away. I mean, surely everybody has watched it. But just in case. And all of a sudden it says, oh, yes, they're sister and brother. And so the other one else, and everything is fixed. Well, that is still love. But, thanks to anagnorisis, it's not the sort of erotic kind, it's the sisterly, brotherly kind, everything gets fine. You do not change the facts. They are in love, but like brother and sister, not as lovers. And therefore, not someone else, solo, can come in. Almost gave it away, yeah? So, the classic is, of course, Oedipus. Oedipus has to go through a dramatic anachronisis. Nothing changes in what he has been told. You will kill your father, you will marry and have sex, to be clear, with your mother. It's just that he doesn't quite know. He meets a foreigner and he kills him. He gets to a city and he marries the, the queen, who actually is available because someone killed the other guy, he doesn't quite know, etc. And all of a sudden, oops, well, that's the, the other way of anagnosis. It doesn't work as well as in Star Wars. Uh, now, we know all this, uh, um, giving away some other classic from the past, The Sixth Sense, The Others, uh, if you haven't watched them, I've already ruined for you uh, both movies. Um, there is a moment of anagnorisis there where nothing in the narrative changes apart from the complete interpretation. It's utterly upside down. So what do we have here? This point here is the point of anagnorisis. From that point onwards, you reinterpret the past, not factually, but in terms of what it meant, remember, your semantic capital remains consistent, it's just that the facts get reorganized differently. And the difference between falsification and anagnosis is that it works also for the future. From that moment onwards, your ability to reinterpret the future is constrained. That's why no, we have Oedipus and the soap opera. In Oedipus, you stop at, it's my mother, was my father. In a soap opera, you have another say, oh no, it was not true, it looked like your mother, but it was not like, that's it. the soap opera keeps anagnorizing, at some point you get tired, because anything can happen in the opposite of anything, nothing makes sense, because of course, all of a sudden, the guy who was dead reappears, the one who was, was alive was a, was a ghost, nothing makes, no, anything, no, because you break the logic of it, you decided, I don't care, this is season 27, we need that character from 25 years ago, back in place. Now, this means that given information flow or content or the semantic capital, the process means the epistemic change that a later stage, a later stage in, um, in the information flow acquires a new meaning. From that moment onwards, they have to be brother and sister. I will not accept that, oh no, 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 sorry, no, we're gonna redo it again. And that's why it's very difficult to fall in love more than once. How many times can you do that? Once, twice, maybe three times. If you do it all the time, that's not love. That's so called something else. That's Don Juan. Uh, so the idea that you can constantly reshuffle your semantic capital no matter what, that is not true. 
but there is a lot of re-adaptation that can go in it. So that's uh, one of the items I have in the logic of a, a semantic uh, capital. This ability to reorganize our story as in we were always meant to leave the European Union. I always meant that as a good story. I know I'm the Prime Minister, but that's really, really what I meant in the past, despite the videos. I never meant to sustain or support something else. You can do that once. Were you able to do again, that would be hugely suspicious. So the value of this, why should we care? Well, I guess uh, everybody has his own interpretation, but strictly speaking, why does it matter? Well, I have some almost religious approach to this. I used to be Catholic, I'm no longer, uh, so I'm no longer a believer, uh, meaning that I have lost the ability to um, project onto semantic capital that we are generating a transcendent, transcendent value, a sort of non-immanent value. But if you have that, well, that just adds to the picture. And, and I know I knew, so I'm glad that that is possible. If you are unable to attach to that semantic capital, uh, transcendent, non-secular, eternal value, well then we need to be able also to do something a little bit more minimalistic, I mean be more sort of down to earth. In that case, I treat semantic capital as the topsoil of our lives. If you've seen any country where people have removed all the trees, you know that those hills, those mountains, they become bare. At some point, they are only stones, rocks, nothing else. That special little layer of living biological richness, sometimes called the humus, not the spread, but the uh, topsoil, well, that is exactly where life develops, only there, and you need to be careful. It's a very fine balance. So that's the analogy I have in mind or had in mind before Googling and thinking, oh, surely everybody must be thinking this way. And if I had to have a catchphrase, to me it's meaning that gives meaning. Remember, this semantic capital is what semanticizes anything else. It's in itself uh, sort of the outcome, the result of giving meaning and giving sense, but at the same time it's also the same capital that gets there. Now, the point being that not only a meaningless life is not, not, it's not worth reading, but it's not livable. Anyone who has had that moment of crash where the semantic capital disappears completely and there's only bare bones, only stones, only rocks, knows that that is something that we will try to avoid at all cost. That vacuum, the emptiness or meaningfulness is what drives you crazy, what makes you hang yourself is the moment of desperation, as in loss of any hope. Now, to avoid that, we will do anything, including interpret the world uh, according to the gods, uh, the Greek gods, or thinking that it's bad luck. It, anything we'll do as long as we can attach some meaning, meaning to the life we have, to the experience we enjoy or not. Meaning that we better do this properly. Because if the problem becomes, I will do anything I can to avoid the emptiness, well, let's make sure that the alternative is not anything goes, but something decent, something that is 
the topsoil of your life. Now, I know that term means I is 42, but uh, that's exactly what I mean sometimes in terms of uh, this uh, particular topsoil. Now, because uh, I'm talking about capital in a sort of almost non-metaphorical sense, I thought I should develop a little bit further this value of semantic capital. This is a classic from you know, 101 economy for beginners, uh, people like me, and it tells you on two axes, um, imagine a, a third axis, all this, imagine, take the picture and make it travel through time, okay? This thing, meanwhile, is moving through time. I didn't add the third axis, I thought it was just too complicated anyway. But these are Z axis of time. But the two axis are the classic business school two by two. If you go to a business school, it's always two by two, eh, by the way. If you are a philosopher, it's always three. Thesis and thesis and someone else. If you go to a business school, it's one, two, three, four. So the business school analysis here is bottom, something that depreciates through time, loses value, or something that acquires value. And on the uh, y-axis, something that is unproductive is capital, but doesn't generate any further capital, or is productive. Now, imagine a car. And I want to make you uh, aware of the fact that uh, it's more complicated than you actually find in the, in the textbook, because the car normally is treated as only one kind of capital. Not true. Imagine that you have a car. If a car is, um, sorry, if the car is just a car, your uh, normally car that you take from here to there to travel around, etc., that's defined as unproductive, it's not generating more capital, and is losing value as we speak. That's why you should never buy a, a new car, obviously. But if you use it as a Uber driver, well, it is true that it's losing value, but it's productive, it's generating some capital, your income. That's what Uber has done to us. Yeah. Or, if you use it as uh, a collector, well, it's just a beautiful <coughs> old car uh, there, an antique in the garage. Well, that is unproductive, is there, but it's acquiring value. Uh, no, you can sell it for more as we go on. Or, even better, suppose you use it as an old car for weddings, as a Uber driver, perfect. It's a car that is productive and appreciating through time. Now you know in which business we need to be. Clearly, you want to have your semantic capital top right. Now, I've changed slightly the, the, the picture, so uh, forgive me for the mix match, uh, but let's talk about uh, so semantic capital. And uh, it's going to be controversial, but remember, I used to be on the religious side, so no one needs to take offense. Um, and there's a question mark at some point. Okay, I prepared everybody. Hmm? Be gentle, okay? So, suppose we are in an academic context, and the semantic capital we're talking about is the capital S, capital C, something no, sort of, uh, that's got to do with knowledge and the academic knowledge. Well, there's a lot of uh, scholasticism that is unproductive. The classic paper, nobody reads, publishing, etc., which is totally depreciating. It, it loses value as we speak. It's not even worth the paper on which has been published. Plenty. No, gazillions of that. Okay? Fine. We need to know. No secret. You could actually go to something that is equally depreciating as we speak, but it's fashionable. It generates more papers. It's what we call the cottage industry. Now, you've always been exposed to some of this, especially if you've not been in a PhD program. The cottage industry will generate more people. We actually may land you with a tenure somewhere, a job. Now, this is a very, very internal sort of analysis. Uh, totally fashionable. Uh, depreciating, yeah, absolutely. I mean, next generation <coughs> would not even know that someone had written or done anything. He's just lost stuff there. Or, oh, but someone got the job, yes. 
Oh, oh you could, sorry, uh, you could move to um, the unproductive and yet appreciating academic uh, area. It's unproductive, and this is something that I find problematic uh, once I give you a more general picture. This is just a specific example, because exactly what semantic capital can be in terms of uh, unproductive, so it's not generating more meaningfulness, shall we say, in the world, and yet acquires value, well, the only thing I can think of, but that's where, as far as I went, as far as I can go at the moment, is an archive that no one is using. So the available but not access, not use kind of accumulation of semantic capital that is appreciating as we go on, maybe it's a lost library somewhere, maybe it's a lost uh, sort of song somewhere, and yet it's unproductive because no one is, no, there's no living mind that's going through. I think the underground is working again. Um, and then you have something that I didn't know what word to use, shall we call it authentic, but I'm happy to find anything else. The sort of semantic capital, say in academia or in university, which is both officiating in value and productive. Uh, it could be Newton, for all I know, okay? Now, suppose that we want to generalize, this is just a, a little example. Well, how about unproductive and depreciating semantic capital called gossip, Facebook cats, trash novels? I hope you can see, remember, I gave you the example of the car because, oh, it depends. I know, I know it depends. Maybe that trash novel really changed your life, and that's fine. And maybe we need to put it up there, uh, productive, and fine. But normally, it's called trash, trash novel for a reason, the kind of stuff you pick up at the airport. In fact, you might even throw it away at the end of the day. So, so allow me, but um, I know that there's always, oh, it depends, of course. And then uh, the productive, but depreciating. Fashion, not just fashionable idea, but fashion. Fashion as in you should be wearing a tie of their color. News, of course, news, no, remember me. Fish and chips, etc. joke. And what about religion? That's a big question mark for me. I don't know. According to some people, yes. According to others, not quite. Uh, and I'm happy to leave you there with a big question mark about whether that semantic capital, that is the belief, the faith of someone, is actually depreciating uh, as time goes by you know, in the future. You know, humanity becoming more lay, uh, less, not more secular, uh, less religious, or in fact, no, the you're wrong, it's the other way around. You should put it elsewhere. I'm happy to have a discussion about this. But of course, the classics are there, you know, the R, science, classics, this is the semantic capital, and it could be mine, it could be the Rolling Stones. I, I'm not talking about necessarily you know, Shakespeare, but something that it's there for us to help us to make sense of the world, explain it, give meaning to it. And what do we put here? Uh, the good thing about deadlines is that at some point you have to release the PowerPoint. And uh, if you are serious, I didn't want to trick anyone into believing that I had an answer at all costs. I don't know. I'm not quite sure whether there's any semantic capital in the world that works so well like in the car example. That's why I spoke previously about a reservoir of meaningfulness somewhere that we're not using, that we have forgotten about. And I will give you some example later. But it shifts from what it is to how. That's why I'm not satisfied. Are you with me? The first three, one, two, three, the ones where I provide example, is something out there. If I start putting something on the bottom right in terms of not something, but whether is or is not being accessed by you, 
used by. But then we reshuffle is a different category. So there's a bit of logical shift which uh, makes me, the logician, uh, unsatisfied. So I'm leaving that open, and I might even end up by saying, well, that's where the analogy with capital ends. Well, that doesn't have to be. Now, in all this, uh, what about classics? Well, classics are normally, and that's because uh, you know, it's e the easy example, are uh, this kind of reservoir of semantic capital. Now, they're normally appreciated in many ways. This is a, a classic way of defining a classic, as I know, you know, open. A classic is something that can be read in a thousand times, in a thousand years, and it still tells us something about ourselves, the world, etc. True. But remember what I said at the beginning where I wasn't going to do semiotics or philosophy of that kind or uh, hermeneutics? Because um, interpreting a classics as an open text, classic analysis by, for example, Umberto Eco, that's fine, and I don't dispute that, but I'm not interested. That's not what I mean here. Because it's a way of saying, what can I do to it? Not, what can you do for me? And so, what I like to say is that it's a major resource of semanticization. It's what I can use a million times to say, oh, that reminds me of the Macbeth. What a tragic figure that politician is, for example. Or, as I was just in Rome the other day, and uh, uh, there was a moment when we had to face, are we in charge of our destiny? And what else, if not Julius Caesar? And you can actually quote, in Rome, Julius Caesar, by Shakespeare, saying, we are not underlings. Beautiful. And that's what helps you to make sense of the world. So that's what I mean. Not just what is in itself, how open that is. Of course, the two are one the side of the other. The openness provides the applicability. Applicability is due to the openness and vice versa. But I would like to see this side of the medal. And so what risk do we have? And finally, you must have perceived some ethical underling here, you know, some sort of aftertaste, but I want to focus on this. So if, at the moment, this is the uh, sort of uh, semantic capital that we might be discussing, it may or may not be uh, a powerful concept. It's not been around, but we might get a new one. If the definition makes some sense, if the examples are kind of okay in terms of running with them, and if the logic starts looking like a logic of coherence of the narrative, anagnorisis, etc. If there are analogies with respect to how you can extract more capital from that capital or not becomes useless, fruitful or fruitless, well then uh, some of the things that we are learning here are the risks and the advantages. And this is really about ethics. So there are some risks uh, which I try to present in the sort of capital-oriented almost economy of semantic capital. The potential of loss that's the risk of part or all of the value of some content. Remember, the content as defined in terms of a meaningful and well-formed data, that kind of content, that can no longer enhance someone's power to give meaning to and make sense of semanticize something. Well, it's just the same definition by saying, well, if this is the stuff that we cherish and value, any decrease of it will be the particular risk we're running. And so semantic capital risk can occur through projects that go wrong, Investments in something that failed to semanticize. The choice you made, the choice we made as a society, the decision not to do something or to do something with the wrong means that didn't turn out to be as fruitful as we thought. 
I'm going to be a little bit more precise, but that's the line of reasoning I want to pursue. So here is a concrete example of semantic capital risk, cultural appropriation. I know there's a huge debate these days, but this is where the digital, and I want to connect now the digital quite strongly uh, to what I've said so far, is reshaping dramatically the risk we are running. The more we know each other, the more closely we interact with each other, the easier it becomes to borrow, in these three forms, for example, things from other people that mean something else for those people. In those cases, these are this religious semantic capital. And the appropriation of that religious semantic capital by the wrong people in the wrong way, maybe making fun, maybe in the wrong context, or inadvertently even, because of course we all make mistakes without not meaning, what that is a huge risk that the digital can at the same time increase and counteract. It can increase in terms of how much we have more access to semantic capitals that are not ours. The more cultures I can be one click away from. The Facebook moment where I saw someone dressed like this and I thought oh, that was funny, funny, oh, I can do that on Sunday. Uh, without knowing more, without understanding more. And yet, at the same time, the dual nature of the digital, well, that's exactly where it takes one moment to Google what that means, to understand, oh, whoa, whoa, no, wait, wait a moment, this is improper, it will, it will not be respectful. So in this particular sense, no, cultural appropriation as a form of disrespect for someone else's uh, capital, to me is also uh, a way of saying, well, it's misappropriation of semantic capital. Now, if you go and read, or if you have heard a lot about some, uh, this uh, cultural appropriation as a problem, you know that normally is linked to colonialism. And I agree with that. Full stop. There's no but. There's an end. And it doesn't even have to be that. It's wrong even when no colonial interaction is in question. It's wrong when uh, where I'm taking from, maybe it's a great power. Maybe it's a great culture and I'm still disrespectful towards uh, that great power and that great culture. So normally, usually, is the powerful versus the weak, yes. Normally is someone, probably from Europe, or the usual suspects, taking advantage of, of, of cultures, now say US, no, sorry, uh, over here, of things they do not understand. They think that is a joke. Fine, yes, don't get me wrong. However, even if that were not the case, it will still be a misappropriation of someone else's semantic capital if that semantic capital comes from a powerful, en enormously energetic, etc. Uh, place. Maybe less offensive? I don't think so. Disrespect is disrespect. And it doesn't matter whether you are dis disrespectful towards the powerful or the weak. Although the weak, there is something more aggravating there. The other one, the other example is, again, of semantic capital risk, is the filter bubble. The redundancy, the noise, the filter bubble can also be read in terms of impoverishment of the semantic capital. It's almost the other side of the previous, you know, the cultural appropriation. Because if you could go from one extreme, you know, appropriating anyone, no matter what, it's a big shop out there, ideas, you know, no, two penny a kilo, who cares? Uh, I don't mind whether that means a lot in your culture, whether the semantic capital that you are invested as a society there is enormous, is I need a costume for you know, the next Halloween. Well, the other side, the extreme, is like, I'm going to talk only to my semantic capital people. We always and only exchange the same tokens 
And you know, a closed economy is a bad economy. The richness in the exchange with the other dies. There is no enrichment, there is no challenging, and all of a sudden, one mistake leads to the other mistake. Oh, there's plenty of respect in the filter bubble, <laughs> because I'm respecting myself. By talking to you, I'm just projecting on to you what I think anyway. And as long as you say the same thing I said, as long we all love dogs here and no cats allowed, that's fine. Now, that is the other risk that we need to sort of prick, because once again, the digital allows this. We know this even more <coughs> than for the previous case, but it's also what can challenge that enormously. Nothing like, again, one click away to get out of the bubble. To summarize, and uh, coming to the end of the, the talk, these are classically, you know, you just have to do a bit of logical analysis, what happens to your capital, whether semantic or not. You, had, you might have a loss. It might be not lost, but it's in your pocket unproductive. You don't do anything with it. It might be underused. You may have it, use it, but not use it well enough opportunity cost. Or you may have it, use it, and perhaps use it even well, but it's still inflated, it's still depreciating as we go. All these four risks that cover all possible alternatives here are connect to, again, digital questions. Fake news. Yeah. Well, the fake news is another form of vandalism. Vandalism of what? Well, now that I have this special expression, I like to think, oh, it's vandalism of semantic capital. We have a huge wealth of, say, well-established truth or things that we think are pretty okay. And anyone, every time, no, is sending another tweet from the White House, is eroding, vandalizing that semantic capital. I don't like it, no matter who is the owner of that semantic capital. So this is propaganda in the, pa in the past, fake news, lies. What is exactly what is ruining and is a loss of semantic capital? a depreciation as we speak. Or you could have the unproductive or underuse. Here, Matthew comes as particularly helpful. Remember that story? You know, the Matthew uh, recounts us that the master has to leave and gives five talents, three talents, and one talent to the servants. I said, I'm coming back. Make sure you do something with this uh, money, the talents. We call them talents today for a reason. And, um, Comes back and says, what have you done with the money? I said, oh, I've got five. Here's the other five. I've got ten. Oh, well done. You have plenty. No. And someone says, oh, I've got three. I, I double them. Six. Fantastic. Go ahead. And then there's the guy who says, I've got one. I put it away in the bag. No, under a little hole, etc. Here, because you're a nasty guy, so I'll give you back what you gave me. You should be glad. I said, oh, you beast up. And he gets punished robustly. Didn't do anything with it. So here, the Matthew being unproductive or underuse is the risk of mosaification. The digital should not freeze and mosaify whatever it touches. On the contrary, it's conservation, restoration of the cultural heritage, and you can see why I couldn't miss the opportunity of this talk here now. I surely if I dare to speak about this stuff is here, nowhere else, to try it for the first time. Surely that is the counterpart. So is the digital helping us here, or is it play? Is it playing the wrong role in uh, maybe just uh, making sure that something gets there, recorded, and forgotten? Is the digital the new hole in the soil where I put my talent and goodbye? Or is actually, you know, the five, the three talents that get more? Well, 
we really have to decide. This is a matter of governance of the digital. It's not just a matter of, oh, it happens, let's see how it goes. It's a decision that we have to take, and an ethical one as well. And then finally, depreciation. Well, the education and the digital go hand in hand. All this, unfortunately, uh, loses value unless you keep adding to it. There's a sort of inflation in uh, some of the capital, semantic capital we have, that gets lost, not its value, generation through generation. We tend to forget that the, the role of education is also to make sure that the value of the semantic capital we have taken millennia to create, that topsoil is passed on to in the right format with the richness that it deserves to the next generation. I love, there's an advertisement, I don't know if you saw it, but there's someone who had a brilliant idea. Now, you never own this particular watch. You just take care of it for the next generation. I've forgotten the watch, so it's not a very successful advertisement. But the phrase is beautiful. It gives you this sense of, I'm a passing point. I'm the receiver, the carer, and the sender of the semantic capital I've inherited. I'm enriching and cherishing and protecting for you, next generation. Now, unless we have this sense of service, we're going to destroy this because, oh, it's just consumable. It's just more than... Uh, Nothing else than a trash novel in the previous example. So we come to an end here, and you can see that uh, the next step in my no, intellectual development and research, uh, unless someone puts out something out there and I can uh, rely on someone else's research, is to develop a care for semantic capital. An ethical framework that tells us, well, so what exactly are we here for? What, what are we doing? And I don't want to hear just the story of, oh, um, you know, this heritage is important. Why? Well, because it does work for us. So I want to add to the value in and of itself, to the I have no courage in destroying the watch that belonged to my grandfather moment, also say, no, no, this watch also does work for me in terms of meaning more in terms of wider sense than just what it is in itself. Now, with this, I'd like to thank the rest of the lab because that's the Digital Ethics Lab people with whom I have plenty of conversations. So some of the ideas I presented, they also come from our seminars. And thank you so much for your patience and your kindness in your questions. Thank you. <laughs>